So we could end up destroying the entire ozone layer. I want to consider a class of solutions that have never been considered before. Human engineering. It involves the biomedical modification of human beings. I'll give four examples. Here's one. 18% of greenhouse gas emissions come from livestock farming. So if we eat less meat, we could significantly reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Now some people would be willing to eat less meat, but they lack the willpower. Human engineering could help. <laughs> Just as some people are naturally intolerant to milk or crayfish, like myself, we could artificially induce mild intolerance to meat <laughs> by stimulating our immune system against common bo uh, bovine proteins. And in this way, we can create an aversion to eating eco-unfriendly food. And we can do this, for example, by having meat patches, kind of like nicotine patches. People can then wear these patches before they go out for dinner to curb their enthusiasm for eating meat. This is the Liberty NZ Breakfast. Would you call yourself a socialist? Uh, no. You've never told a lie in politics? No, no. See, somebody sent me a video actually last Friday and it had you talking at the socialist community. Oh, right. yes, yes. And you mentioned the word comrade uh, about four times in a minute. What was that about? It was a rally and I would have been about 25 years old. Comrade, 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 comrade. Comrade, 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 comrade. That was in 2009. Oh, well, I can't remember which country it was in. Has it changed since those days? No, not particularly. No. If you are caught in a lie or caught intentionally misleading the New Zealand public, how would you expect to be held to account? Well, I actually believe that it is possible to exist in politics without lying. We drum in that messaging around the dangers of COVID pretty diligently for a full two-week period of sustained propaganda. Sustained propaganda. Have your say. I'm Linda Topic. This is TNT Radio. this hour simply go to episodes at tntradio.live now tnt radio news recapping some of the news that shaped the past week i'm matt boyland south africa has severed ties with israel in protest of its relentless bombardment of gaza south african lawmakers voting this week to shut down the israeli embassy in pretoria and terminate diplomatic relations until israel commits to a complete ceasefire we should do a census 2023 on what is happening in Palestine and how many children have been massacred, how many women have been massacred, how many of those in the hospital were massacred in cold blood by the barbaric state of Zionist Israel. Having considered the proposed amendment moved by the chief whip of the majority party, I rule as follows that the amendment is in order as it only seeks to clarify the circumstances of the closure of the Israeli embassy 
and the suspension of diplomatic relations. India has become the latest country to flex its military might, test firing an extended range anti-ship cruise missile at sea. New Delhi claiming to have conducted two successful launches on Tuesday and Wednesday. The Indian Navy releasing footage of the rocket being fired from the country's newest stealth-guided missile destroyer. The cruise missile was developed by India and Russia, making it New Delhi's first domestically produced naval projectile. The weapon originally had a range of just 290 kilometres, but that has since been extended to strike targets up to 500 kilometres away. Russian President Vladimir Putin says the world is going through a transformation as a new world order is born. The Russian president making the remarks while addressing G20 leaders during a virtual summit on Wednesday. The situation in the global economy and the situation in the world in general requires collective decisions based on consensus that would reflect the vast majority of the global community. Putin also clapped back at Western leaders who expressed their shock at Russia's aggression in Ukraine, reminding the West that it was Kyiv who pulled out of peace talks. Yes, hostilities are always a tragedy for individual people, families for a country in general. And of course we have to think how to stop this tragedy. And by the way, Russia never refused to hold peaceful negotiations with Ukraine. It was not Russia but Ukraine that publicly announced that they are quitting negotiation process. Even more, they have adopted a presidential decree that bans such negotiations with Russia. This conflict is shocking, but what about bloody coup d'etat in 2014 that was followed by the war of the Kiev regime against their own people in Donbass? Does this not shock you? Or exterminations of civilians in the Gaza Strip in Palestine? Is this not shocking to you? And Hollywood agencies have dropped Oscar-winning actresses Susan Sarandon and Melissa Barrera over their comments about Israel's war in Gaza, which triggered accusations of anti-Semitism. Here with more is TNT's Patrick Henningsen. When it comes to repressive free speech environments, no place is more dangerous than Hollywood. Here you can see the top studios and the top talent agencies all very much colluding to cancel a number of high-profile actors that have defended the Palestinian cause and human rights and also opposed the genocide being carried out by the Israeli government with the full backing of the U.S. High-profile actors and activists like Susan Sarandon, she's getting dropped from her talent agency. Who knows, some of these actors might not work again because of their political stance, but really they've gotten a tremendous amount of street cred through this as well as the millions of people pour onto the streets supporting the Palestinians and opposing ethnic cleansing and genocide. This is certainly a very telling moment in history, and when it's all said and done, where will the people be? With these actors or with the studios and those talent agencies that are clearly being influenced from Tel Aviv? For TNT Radio. This is Patrick Henningsen. Thank you, Patrick. And we'll have weather next. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Five past five with Grant Ebers on Liberty NZ Breakfast. Thanks for joining me. Having a bit of trouble getting on to Met Service. Uh, but we're over at weatherwatch.co and we've got the national news here. 
and it looks like a very weak ridge of high pressure lies over the country today. Meanwhile, a low sits way out to our east in the Pacific and another low sits in the Tasman Sea, uh, dropping to the southeast overnight. For the North Island, partly cloudy skies in the west uh, with uh, west-southwesterly winds tending westerly this afternoon. Mostly sunny for the Bay of Plenty in the eastern regions with high cloud this evening. Light winds tend on shore. Uh, that's this afternoon. However, winds remaining from the west southwest all day for Bay of Plenty. A light shower or two may arrive in the west this evening. For the South Island, partly cloudy skies in the west and south. Sun and developing high cloud in the east. A few isolated showers developing in the afternoon for central Otago through to inland south Canterbury. Easing this evening. Rain moves to Fjordan and then eventually southland during the uh, course of this afternoon. A coastal Otago this evening. And this evening, a few light showers spread north along the west coast. Westerly quarter winds in the west to east-north, uh, in the west rather, with east to northeasterly winds freshening up in the east this afternoon. So that is weather, short and sharp. And uh, there it is. We'll be back with uh, some more news for you in just a moment. Congressman, not the NBC media, not no, I, most I, American I media. I we're talking. It. I did not say NBC, but but CNN. We're talking about and I will tell media you, media in it, the Arab world. And I will, CNN did as well. And I will tell you, uh, it is wrong. It is wrong. We need to, when you are in war, you better make sure you have your facts. We cannot have Baghdad Bobs running around uh, promulgating these lies, uh, especially members of Congress. Uh, so it is imperative. Uh, it does matter. Uh, facts matter here. And we need to make sure uh, that people understand Israel did not attack a hospital. Uh, that was a terrorist organization that did that. Mm. Well, coming up next, we've got Douglas Murray, and this uh, is almost 50 minutes, and it's a very good, very good uh, program. Uh, it's just, just come out the last day, yesterday, in fact, and so we'll be listening to that between now and the 6 o'clock news with TNT uh, coming up very shortly. For those who crave more than just reading headlines in their social media feeds. People need to wake up. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. We'll be back with Douglas Murray and Liberty NZ. Associate editor of The Spectator, Douglas Murray writes for a number of publications, including The Wall Street Journal. Mr. Murray is the author of a number of books, including The Strange Death of Europe, which appeared in 2017, and The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity, which will appear this coming September. Douglas Murray, welcome. It's a great pleasure to be with you. The Strange Death of Europe, I quote, Europe is committing suicide, or at least its leaders have decided to commit suicide. Whether the European people choose to go along with this is naturally another matter, close quote. We'll come to your argument in a moment, but the book appeared in 2017. For now, what do you make of what the people are willing to put up with two years after you published the book? It's very interesting. Um, in the two years since it came out, it's been coming out in, I think it's now out in every European language. So I've been pretty constant. I'm in a different country every week in Europe and elsewhere. And so I get a pretty good sense of where things are. Um, I would say there are several things. The, the direction of travel hasn't changed, but some of those in positions of power have done things that I was surprised they would be willing to do to slow it down. I'm thinking particularly of the fact that 
The book centers on the migration crisis of 2015, which I just see as a sped-up version of something that had been happening for decades. But uh, since uh, 2015, the European leaders, among other things, did a deal with um, President Caliph Erdogan, and uh, he now has a gun to Europe's head that he knows he can fire at any point. The deal, just explain that. I'm going to have to stop you from time to time to make sure that for an American audience, we're, we're very explicit. Erdogan is president of Turkey, and the nature of the deal was? Uh, We Europeans pay him huge sums of money, and he stops boats leaving the Turkish shores for Greek islands. Right. And it is just as crude and straightforward as that. He's not doing it out of the kindness of his heart. Right. Um, And things like that have undoubtedly meant that the flow of 2015 has slowed. I mean, the boats are still setting off from the North African coastline, uh, but nothing like the rate of 2015. So there have been some things like that that have surprised me. All right. Uh, let's lay out the basic argument. So you're not concerned with any kind of temporary European malaise or questions of slow economic growth, which is a lot of what we hear on the other side of the big water. Again, I'm quoting you. Europe today has little desire to reproduce itself, fight for itself, or even take its own side in an argument. By the end of the lifespans of most people currently alive in Europe, Europe will not be Europe, and the peoples of Europe will have lost the only place in the world we had to call home." Close quote. Two years later, you you stand, but that's a very dramatic statement. Two years later, you stand by that. Oh, absolutely. Yes, in the the lifespans of, as I say, most people, uh, it'll be a different place. It already is. And I lay some of that out in remorseless detail in The Strange Death of Europe. Um, Sometimes when things happen relatively slowly, people get used to things, they adapt. Uh, I give the example of the census in the UK, the last census in the UK, which showed that in 23 out of 33 London boroughs, people who identify as white British are in the minority in those boroughs. So that, that in the lifespan of, I mean, you can either, you know, like that, dislike it, or feel so benign about it. But that, that's a massive change in just one person's lifespan already. John Cleese tweeted, as we taped this, it was, I think it was last week, John Cleese of Monty Python fame tweeted... London no longer seems to be an English city. If I'm, I think that's a close, yes. close paraphrase, if not a quotation. And he was attacked. Mer- well, the attack, as, as attacks are on Twitter. Yeah. But he was correct. Yeah, he was correct. I mean, and by the way, factually correct. what he said is effectively what is boasted about by politicians, including the mayor of London and the previous mayor of London. They say, you know, it's an international city. They're very happy about that. Right. But if somebody says, well, that means it's not an English city anymore, then they, 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 they uh, attack Somebody like, whether it's John Cleese, me, or whoever, for heresy. I mean, it's very interesting, by the way, isn't it? I mean, John Cleese was, was attacked for the heresy of Life of Brian, what, 40 years ago. <laughs> yes. He's attacked by the clerics now. It's just they're the clerics of the far left and the social justice movements and so on. They just happen not to wear frocks like his previous critics. But it's the same phenomenon. I've, I've debated and discussed these issues for years now, and I know every one of the moves that people do the number of dishonest moves, things like, that's not the case. Okay, that is the case. That is the case, but you shouldn't say it. Or, that is the case, and it's great, suck it up. Right. Right. So, to continue with the basic argument, um, 
this has come about, this death of Europe, or the death of this has come about, quote, because of two simultaneous concatenations from which it is now all but impossible to recover. The first is the mass movement of peoples into Europe, close quote. So explain that, 20, explain 2015, and tell us what that was, what happened in 2015, remind us, and that was a speeded up version of what? Well, Again, you're, deal- you're talking to a largely American right. audience here, so fill us in. Basically, in the aftermath of the Second World War, most Western European countries decided that they wanted to invite migrant labor in to help rebuild. Uh, at the beginning, the idea was that they wouldn't stay. They would come and then they'd go home after doing the job. Unsurprisingly, they did stay, or at least large proportions of them did. And gradually, people started to be brought in, even if there weren't jobs for them to go to. So, for instance, you imported large numbers of people from uh, the Indian subcontinent to mill towns in the north of England when there were no mills anymore. Um, and then, uh, and the thinking on that was, uh, I'm not sure there was very much thinking. Uh, uh, it was what we call the cock-up view of history: a succession of of lazy and cowardly politicians who just found it easier to kick this one down the road and leave it to their successors to deal with. We kept changing the story of what we were doing as we, as we were doing it. I, I recount in the book, we moved from the guest worker period to the multicultural period where you said, yeah, live in our country and sort of pretty much do what you like, to the modern one, which is become like us. Now, those are three totally different things in the course, again, of one person's lifetime. And I blame no migrant for being confused by that because we were confused. But in 2015, um, the the, the movement got to its height of total unregulated movement. And this was the year in which uh, it had started off in the beginning of this decade we're in. Uh, partly people coming, fleeing the Syrian civil war, but then uh, people from all across sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, the Middle East, the Far East. And I started traveling to the camps in uh, southern Europe where people were arriving in. I've been to many of the countries they were fleeing from. And it was a veritable United Nations of people. Now, in the eyes of some of the governments and many of the public, it was all people fleeing the Syrian civil war. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Even by the EU's own figures, at least 60%, 60% of the arrivals in 2015 had no more right to be in Europe than anyone else in the rest of the world. So when Angela Merkel invited a million refugees, refugees is, was the term, Migrants. Migrants, yeah, migrants let's call them migrants. Yeah. When she invited a million of them into Germany, this is crude for, I'll, I'll, I'll put it badly, you sharpen up what I'm about to say because this is the way an American would look at it. The Germans are still acting in some way or another out of a sense of war guilt. Sure. That's, sure. It, that's straightforward. Oh, absolutely oh. straightforward. I mean, I, uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, this is a job for a psychiatrist in many ways. Look at the reception at Munich Station. As 10,000 people are arriving every 48 hours or so at the height of the movement in 2015, uh, they were coming up through the Balkans and up through Central Europe. And uh, there were crowds at Munich train station, uh, high-fiving the arrivals, giving them balloons, teddy bears. Um, what was it? It's perfectly obvious. It, it was Germans elated at the sight of people breaking into their country rather than trying to break out. Right. So, but even at that, even if it was a kind of act of German self-indulgence, an act on acting out of war guilt... The whole argument was that these people were unfortunate, that they were fleeing civil war, and you're saying that 60% of them simply weren't. A, a lot more than, than 60%. I mean, you, what you get into in all of the issues with migration is, and specifically European migration, is 
People find it incredibly hard to know where you salami slice issues. So, for instance, they say, yes, we'll have people coming in who are genuinely fleeing the Syrian civil war, for instance. Right. Well, there's an argument about that as well. You can look after 100 Syrians in a neighbouring country for every one you look after in Europe. So it's not efficient in all sorts of ways, whether or not it's humane. But let's say that, yes, OK, people fleeing the Syrian civil war. But then you have the, the people, including the aid agencies, making the point, well, and one Afghan refugee made this to me to my face. He said, Syrians have only been at war for five years. We've been at war for 15 years. Why should they have priority? Very good question. So you go along that, and then you get to the thing that all of the aid agencies and the NGOs and others have been doing for years, which is you elide and rub out the difference between people fleeing war and people fleeing economic deprivation. Right. Now... One of the reasons why I'm quite tough about this is because I know where that argument leads. Gallup last year did a poll in sub-Saharan Africa. One third of sub-Saharan Africans want to move. They're not going to go to Saudi Arabia. They're not planning to break into Yemen. They want to come to Europe. Now, in my view, the the catastrophe underlying all of this is the presumption that every country in the world is basically a country for the people of that country, apart from Europe, and Europe is a place for the world. All right. A few figures from the book. Even as I was reading the argument, these figures, I, it takes a while to adjust. Again, it's because... It, an American, our notion of what's taking place in Europe lags, I think. Hmm. But I found every one of these things shocking. By 2015, I'm taking these from your book. By 2015, more British Muslims were fighting for ISIS than for the British Armed Forces. Yeah. By 2016, the most popular boy's name in England and Wales, Mohammed. Mm -hmm. By the middle of this century, this is a projection, by the middle of this century, a majority of Austrians under the age of 15 will be Muslim. And it is single-digit numbers of years ago that every one of those was unthinkable. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I smile because, <clears throat> I mean, I find it... You're used to it. I find it... I, if I didn't laugh, I'd cry. I've done the crying. I mean, the point about this is, is that, again, all of these things you're meant to not notice. You're, you're meant to not say it either. You're meant to say, yeah, okay, so Mohammed perhaps happens to be the, the most popular boy. Then what are you saying, bigot? Right. What's wrong with that? Right. Or they find ways around it. They say, no, 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 it's, uh, it's just that we, we counted the Harrys in a different way that year and so on. Um, all of these things, uh, um, there has been an enormous cost that people have been made to pay if they observe what's in front of their eyes. And so we get used to this um, uh, sort of just period of lying. Right. And that's what we've been in. What is the Orwell? It takes a great effort to see what is under one's nose. Right. All right. Second concatenation. Again, I'm quoting you, Douglas. <clears throat> at the same time that we've had this influx, at the same time Europe has lost faith in its beliefs, traditions, and legitimacy, Europe is now deeply weighed down with guilt for the past. And there is also the problem of an existential tiredness yes. and a feeling that perhaps for Europe the story has run out and a new story must be allowed to begin. Mm. Okay, take us through that a little. Now, the German war guilt, that's clear. 
Britain seems to me to be... So, again, I'm speaking as an American. What was the Churchill movie that was just a big hit last year? We think of yeah, Britain... Style, yeah. Britain has no apologies to make, no reason to feel guilty. Huh. Neil Ferguson, other people who've looked at the British colonies, on balance, it's a transfer of human capital. Right. They're not impoverishing the people of India. On the contrary... I, I might as well. Right? And so why, why, would, why would you include... Britain. Britain's the hard case for to, to understand why Britain should feel guilty yes. or an existential fatigue. There's several things. One is the, 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 the phenomenon that if, if, if you or I um, were to, to sum up all people across, say, Asia as having responsibility for the same thing, people would say... Madness. That's mad. I mean, I mean you're, not, you're not even picking out the, the important distinctions. You're being very generalising. Right. But you can do that with Europe. So you can say, we did the Holocaust in Europe. You can even get away with that in London. Sorry, sorry, we? We'll be back with Douglas Murray at Liberty NZ. For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. This is Liberty NZ with Douglas Murray. And then you take the other one, post-colonialism, which you refer to. Post-colonialism and post-colonial guilt is suffered in almost equal measure by, for instance, Britain, which... You know, undoubtedly ran quite a lot of the world in the past, and Sweden, which did not. So there has, there's a strange thing that has emerged, which I, I try to explain in the book, where we end up sum, summing up ourselves by our collectively worst moments. The flip side of that is we look at everyone else only by their best. Uh, so recent years, for instance, we've heard an awful lot, certainly since 9-11, about the Islamic Neoplatonists. No one talked very much about the Islamic Neoplatonists until this last 20 years. Um, but the Islamic world is best represented by the Islamic Neoplatonists, whereas Europe is best represented by Auschwitz. Well, here you get to one of the problems of this, is that we are... That's just we, uninformed. Yeah, it's of just, course it's, it's uninformed. All of it's uninformed. And it's also imbibed by vast swathes of the public and told to them by a huge amount of uh, um, uh, academics, media, politicians and others. It's a, I mean, there's several reasons for that, isn't there? I mean, one is that you can, you can do that almost cost-free as a modern politician, can't you? It's like the endless apologies for historical acts. It can gain you something, but it costs you nothing. All you're doing is selling out and misrepresenting the past. But you yourself might be able to polish a bit of your halo or burnish your reputation in some way. Um, but this is just one element of this. this. This thing I describe as the sense of the story running out. Uh, a couple of people have said, and I'm very glad they've pointed this out, that in some ways it's, it's the most original part of the argument of my book. The immigration bit is important and people should know about it. But this second bit, the us bit, what is it about us that would mean this all happened? Mm -hmm. um, not many people have, I think, written about. And by the way, I'm very disturbed about this because almost none of my critics, and there are some, sadly, uh, but almost none of them pick up on this thing. Almost none of them. They go, they go for me over the immigration. Right. But they never pick up on this. That I have not to date had one critic who said, you're wrong on the existential tiredness. You're wrong on that. Our best days are all ahead of us, any of that. You don't, I don't get any of that. And that's a disappointment because I was rather hoping I would. Well, all right, so, so let's, let's take a moment. <clears throat> Help me think it through, layman that I am, that I, 
haven't thought about this in, in any great detail. So what's the parallel? What's the parallel? The parallel, I don't know, fifth century Rome, collapse of civilizational self-confidence. They could, they, of course they could have kept the barbarians out of the city, but they permitted the city to be sacked for reasons that don't make any sense all these years later. And we get the same, you can see why Europe would, would have felt that the First World War was a catastrophe. Second World War is in some ways a reparation. Hmm. And in all the years since the Second World War, the Germans have made this concerted effort to build a good society. Right. There's been economic recovery of, across, of, of all kinds. Mm. And instead of feeling a sense of pride and accomplishment, mm. it's just exhaustion. Well, why? The, why? The, the why is, is, is this. Almost everything is still behind crime scene tape. You mentioned World War I, yes. borders. Okay? I was in the Middle East again recently. In the Middle East, most countries recognize borders to be a prerequisite for peace. If you don't have borders, you're in trouble. Europe thinks that borders are the cause of war. Okay, so that's just the beginning of geography problems. Right. Right. Move on. We had wars of religion before we had the wars of nation states. Some people forget that now. But it means that religion also is to a great extent behind crime scene tape. In the 20th century, it was Europe that came up with the two twin nightmares of fascism and communism. So we're very distrustful of not just politics and political ideas, but the philosophy and possibilities that might lead to them. So it leaves you in this position where absolutely everything is still a crime scene, and you're trying to work out how it happened. And that's why whenever anyone mentions something like borders, Angela Merkel and everybody else in any position of power hears, but the strong borders would be a reason we go to war again. That's what we did then. Mention, I mean, ideas. This is why European, I mean, this is a terrible thing to say for some philosopher friends, but European ideas, to a great extent, philosophy has become a game. I'm not saying it hasn't in America as well. It's a sort of hermeneutical game. You can, you can, you can look at the game, but you can't play it because you don't, because you know what you might go back to. I describe in the book a... Uh, I had a sort of just terrible moment of realization about this some years ago at a, a conference at Heidelberg, and I just realized every single idea was off the table. Not only the ideas, the words. You couldn't say culture. I was almost meltdown when I did. You can't use anything because everything might make us do it all again. Well, it's not surprising in that situation that people would have a sense of weariness. Um, is that a bit, is that something behind, again, you're having to explain all this to an American, but is, th is there some connection between that and the drive toward a European Union? Oh, yeah. That somehow or other we can, we can escape our past yeah. by reinventing, we can dissolve our identity, we can dissolve our historical identity, yeah. we can wash away our historical guilt in this new entity. There is that. There's also, by the way, I mean, I was in Berlin again the other week and a German audience member pointed this out to me, that there is also the thing, even in this stage, the Germans want to lead the way. You know, they just want to, they just want to lead the way in masochism, you know, and, and, and more. Um, but that, that in, the German instinct to dominate, uh, even in the new era, is obviously still there. 
Uh, and also the European Union provides something to do. I mean, I was having this debate a little while ago with the former Polish foreign minister who, who, who said, yes, we've got to keep moving. The EU has to keep moving. It's got to have purpose. It's endlessly onwards and onwards. And my view as a, as a, um, a skeptic of that particular project is how about that it moves until the point at which you lose the public, for instance. How about that? But, but that's, of course, that's a, that's a mad xenophobic British view, of course. All right. You have a new book coming out. The book is entitled The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity. And although you do not, I don't recall reading anything in the book that suggests you were thinking of it or you want readers to think of it as the second in a, mm. in a kind of bookend, mm. one does in many ways follow on the other, yeah. in my judgment. Quote, we are going through a great derangement. People are behaving in ways that are increasingly irrational, feverish, herd-like, and simply unpleasant. And you examine the identity politics of gays, women, racial minorities, and trans. Yes. And the ways in which they're all mad. Yes. So gays, quote, the madness of crowds, the single factor that has most clearly helped to change public opinion about homosexuality in the West has been the decision that homosexuality is in fact a hardware mm. rather than a software issue, close quote. That's extremely striking when one's reading the book. Right. Explain that. I think that this particular thing goes through each of them. Um, I, I, like everyone, I've been trying to work out why uh, people have become so unhinged in recent years. It's not just social media. I, I, I go into some of that in the book. But it's, it's, I think it goes something like this. We've tried to make the fruits of a liberal ethical system into the foundations of one. Okay. Yes, so, yes. For instance, gay rights, of which I'm gay myself, I'm supportive of gay rights, I you know, think it's all good, but it's, it's a great product of liberal rights. It's a, it's a hideous foundation for them. Um, uh, same thing with, for instance, uh, women's rights. Great supporter of women's rights. Very glad, it's, it's, I'm glad, glad we're here rather than 100 years ago. But can it be the basis of a moral system or an ethical system? One of the reasons why I think we've been becoming deranged on this is precisely, as you mentioned, this hardware-software thing. This, the problem is something like this. One of the few things we can all agree on is that we shouldn't be mean to people because of something they can't help. Right. It's one of the reasons why we, we dislike it when, for instance, somebody's rude about somebody who's disabled or taunts yes. them about it. It's right. a horrible thing to do. Now, things that people can possibly affect, we're iffy on. There's a, there's a question. It doesn't mean that we should be rude or unpleasant or anything else, but... There's a, you're in different terrain. So most rights movements have moved towards this thing of born this way, the Lady Gaga view, as I say. Um, born, born this, this way, way means not my fault. Not my fault. Uh, crucially, a counter to lifestyle choice, and I think lifestyle choice is something worth countering on this occasion. But born this way says, nothing I can do about it, so be nice. And this has been adopted recently by the trans movement, which says... We are born trans from childhood, we're trans, so be nice. Now, I explain why this has happened with trans, and it's fascinating, I think. But at the same time, we are making things that are undoubtedly hardware issues, gender, sex, into software. So things we know affects software, meaning malleable things malleable that can be changed, can be changed. by personal will, yeah. by cultural uh, environment, and yeah. so forth. Right. It's, it's, it's why the trans issue, by the way, which is such a minority of a minority issue, has become so huge. 
Because it's demanding two things simultaneously. It's saying something that we're not sure about is absolutely fixed. And one of the very few things we are sure about, sex differences, for instance, is totally a choice. You could be, be a woman at this hour if you'd like. Right. And, and that sort of thing is deranging for pop because, because it's asking us to take part in something we know to be a lie. And it is, among other things, enormously demoralizing to people to be made to lie. And why should it be, why should it be that there is no, it's, it's, it's almost as though there's no cultural immune system. Mm, that's right. It, 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 that what would, have been, what would have been scoffed at, laughed at, single-digit number of decades ago, what certainly would not have been championed by the BBC. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. someone makes a claim, mm -hmm. Douglas Murray would say, but, but, that, but that's not so, that you don't have any scientific evidence to suggest that at all. And the trans says, no, 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 I was born this way, and you need to accept it. And within 20 seconds, the BBC, that's an, a, sure. an official position. Yeah. Why? What well, happened? What changed? What is, why? What what eliminated the cultural immune system to craziness. Is that, am I being too yeah. No, 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 you're, you're understating it. Oh. Um, <laughs> Forgive me. Go ahead. The first thing is all the adults left the room. That's a big problem. We'll be back with Douglas Murray at Liberty NZ. For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT shop is now open at TNTradio.live. Um, it became increasingly hard, secondly, to hold concrete ideas up in public. People can sustain the most extraordinary abstract ideas. We see it every day. But they're finding it extremely hard to hold on to concrete ideas because the concrete idea can have a personification right in front of you in the age of social media. So it's not, you're not talking about people in the abstract. The person is there. You're talking about this person, for instance. So it's rather like borders. People find it hard to hold on to the hard concepts. But there are a whole set of other things as well. One is, and I think this is... Absolutely crucial. We shouldn't underestimate the move that has been played by what was a very fringe movement in academia that is now absolutely rampant across America and Europe, which is sometimes called social justice warriorism, yes, yes, sometimes yes. called intersectionalism, and so on. We didn't take this very seriously, but it should be taken seriously, in my view, because it is, it is probably the single idea since the Cold War ended that has made most headway and which makes the largest claims for itself. It, it is an attempt, this thing of, this is why, the endless thing, women, gays, race, trans, the endless injection of these things into every single public discussion, every political discussion. The fact that um, we, had a, we had a defense secretary in Britain who had to resign a couple of summers ago because 15 years earlier he'd been found to have touched a woman's knee and she asked if he would take it his hand off her knee, and he said, yes, of course, and he did. But 15 years later, he has to resign. The woman wasn't bothered at all. The journalist uh, uh, said, you know, told him I'd smack him in the face if he ever did that again. And, uh, but, but this stuff is... Um, so, Douglas, what, what... The point is, it's everywhere. Yes. And, and, and the other thing, sorry, is that it's, yeah, it's even in... You know, people, people have been saying to me for years, oh, but it's just, you know, it's a bit of academia and you, you over-focus on that. It's just, you know, some West Coast liberal, you know, loopiness. No. Almost every multinational, every corporate, yes, every that's government, right. That's right. they are all committed to this now. The commitment to being diverse, being absolutely woke, as we call it, on all of these issues. And the problem about it is... 
I think it's going to undo all the good that was done. And there's, there's, there are some very clear examples of that. By um, building resentment. Yes. Right. I mean, t t take the obvious one, so, which I, I mentioned in the race chapter. It's taken, what, 50 years to move for Martin Luther King's central moral insight about the nature of somebody's character being the way you judge them, not, not some characteristic skin, like skin color. Skin color does not matter. Right. Character is all. That's exactly. Martin Luther King Jr. Well, today, not so. Uh, there was a, a lecture given the other week at uh, Boston University from an academic who is at uh, George, uh, George Washington University, I think. Yeah, no, Washington State University. She gave a lecture in which she said, people who judge people by the content of the character rather than their skin color are dangerous. Skin color is meant to be everything. And w so, my so God, we are hurtling there. It's a total inversion. Total inversion. All right, question. I'm about a generation older than you are, as, as best I can work it out. As I was coming up, the general feeling among sensible people, the general feeling was young people go to university for four years, and yes, 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 of course the universities are dominated by the liberals, but the kids are smart enough to figure that out, and the moment they leave university, they get jobs, they start paying taxes, they go through what people have gone through, for the, the struggles of forming families and so forth, they become quite sensible. Mm. And you're saying, maybe yes at one point, maybe not, but for sure, mm. now, mm. the universities are actually acting as transmission belts yes. for lunatic ideas yeah across the rest of the culture, from universities to major corporations to the media. Yeah. It's, it's everywhere. I mean... And how did that happen? Again, universities really did used to be idios uh, sort of it, the crazy uncle. You'd send right. your children there because they could avoid the nonsense and you right. humored them. Right. Now they're dangerous. Um, well, it goes back to saying, I, th I think there's an extraordinary lack of courage in our cultures at the moment. The simple courage to say what's true. And this, this has an extraordinary effect because, of course, it means that if you're weighing up whether or not you should go with a mob mentality, a crowd mentality or something or not, if there's basically no benefit to telling the truth, but there could be a huge personal cost to it, right. you just weigh it up. I mean, is it worth doing or not? Is it, if you saw what happened to Brett Weinstein at Evergreen College, who, uh, um, who refused to take part in a racist <laughs> endeavor that the college wanted everyone to take part in, which was to make all white people leave campus for the day. If, if you saw that he and his family ended up being drummed out, not just of the university, but of town, um, and you were another academic who thought, I'm not sure I want to go in with this new era of race baiting that's disguised as anti-racism. And you saw what happened to Brett Weinstein. Would you do what he did or not? Almost certainly not. And this isn't just because most academics are cowards. It's just that most people are. Most people aren't in a position in their lives, in their jobs, in their mortgage, mortgage or anything today, else. Or children to raise. You, and right. you and so that, take, that's... can't take risks. Right. And that's why I, I mentioned um, somewhere in, in The Madness of Crowds that I discovered when I was writing it from a friend in the British Army that there's a British Army device called the Great Viper, which uh, uh, the American military also has. But it's a, it's, it's a device you, you, you pull on the back of a truck to a minefield and you, you fire 
fire this missile, and it's got a long, long rope at the back filled with explosives, and it falls across the minefield very beautifully and then explodes. And it can't clear the minefield as a whole, but it can clear enough room for trucks to cross. And I said that the point of me writing The Madness of Crowds was to be this great viper. I want to try to clear a path for other people to be allowed to cross. Now, of course, the problem is I don't know, my agent points out, we don't know if you survive that or not. <laughs> the analogy may, may be unwise. But, but I, I think that's what people need to do at the moment. We need to, we need to open up a path for sensible people to be able to say things about sex, the relations between the sexes and much more that we all knew until yesterday. Yes. We'll be back with Douglas Murray at Liberty NZ. The climate and energy policies of California are threatening the security of residents. California has increased crude oil imports from foreign countries from 5% just 25 years ago to more than 75% today. According to Heartland analyst Ronald Stein, California is the only state in the United States that imports most of its crude oil feedstock to in-state refineries from foreign countries. California California needs this oil for nine international airports and 41 military airports, as well as shipping ports up and down the coast. Meanwhile, Asia has 88 new oil refineries manufacturing fuel for California's airports and shipping terminals. It's time we recognize that the climate agenda is a national security threat. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. You're listening to Douglas Murray at Liberty NZ. From the madness of crowds back to the strange death of Europe. I have a question that I want to ask, but I'm afraid to ask it because I'm, I'm sure that it's so hugely politically incorrect. Fire away. All right. All right, I will. But this is just between the two of us. Sure. The madness that you just described, what do Muslims make of this when they watch all this, their populations growing in Africa or the Middle East? Is it, I mean, the, 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 what comes across to us every so often, videos and so forth, there will be some imam denouncing the West as mm. decadent. Mm. But if decadence, if cultural decadence means anything, right. it means something pretty close to what you're describing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Experimenting on children and... Yes. Yeah, and like making everything sexual. and Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, well, I always think that... The but what I'm, what I'm worried about is that conservatives hmm. find themselves edging toward the position of saying... Well, you know, those Muslims have a point. Oh, yeah, of course. You can hear that already in Europe. You can hear oh, you little, can do. Oh, yeah. You can but hear a little fair, bit of it on, in America as well. Yes, it's, um, uh, it's not an attractive route to go down. It is I not. I warn people it against not. it. But, my gosh, you can see people, people doing it. Uh, there was a school in Birmingham in England uh, uh, earlier this year where uh, lots of the parents uh, protested outside the school because they didn't want their children to be taught about being gay. In, in uh, classes to teach children about sex education, right. basically. And I know quite a lot of people, including social conservatives, who said, I don't know, which side should we be on? <laughs> and um, look, it, it, it's, if, if a culture pretends, this is a consistent thing in the strange death of Europe and the madness of crowds, if, if, if a culture pretends that it is this cheap, 
ridiculous, um, highly sexualized, race-obsessed, um, uh, 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 totally evidently self-contradictory thing, then it's hardly surprising if it doesn't survive and it doesn't particularly deserve to. Um, my own view has always been that it's just absurd to think that this is the sum of what we've had. And that's, that's the obscenity of this, really. And that's, that's why I also... I say at the end of The Madness of Crowds, I, I want young people in particular to get fast ways out of this, shortcuts out of this madness, how to, how to just get that out of your brain and get onto the life you need to live. And one of the things I keep coming back to is that we should have been asking this question much more all along these years of saying, compared to what? So... If there is a Muslim protest outside the kids' primary school, because they don't want them to learn about gay, find out what it is they do want. What it is that they do want. And if it is that they want Saudi mores on these sorts of things and punishments of, then that's as well to have that out, because then we can make a clear decision. Um, but this is the case on all of them. When people tell us what a patriarchal and bigoted society we live in and how terrible and how there's a war on women and a war on gays and a war on trans and a war on blacks and a war on everybody and against everybody else compared to when? Right. Compared to what? Where's your place? Where's your nirvana? Because if you can't point to something that's at least semi-nirvana-like then I see no reason why we should try this wholly new experiment. In reality, what the people do, if you say compared to what they tend to in your country, as in mine, sort of reveal the foundations and say, you know, Cuban health care is particularly good and so on. You know, uh, actually, literacy, literacy standards in communist Russia are very, very impressive. You know, so they give away what they really want. But that's the point, is if we keep saying compared to what, we know what we're running against. And we know what they're trying to do. And at the moment, we're just in this fog of not realizing the seriousness and the specific nature of the attempts that are being made to totally undermine, rewrite and destroy everything that I think people of any political direction in our countries would have thought of until recently as at least a pretty good deal. I'm happy to say, but sorry to say that you've given me just another very powerful image that... Uh, okay. Douglas, back to the strange death of Europe. Again, it's been two years since you published the book. A couple of questions on the way things have been going since. I quote the book, though, to begin with. From the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 up to the late 20th century, the nation state had generally been regarded not only as the best guarantor of the constitutional order and liberal rights, but the ultimate guarantor of peace. Yet this certainty has also ended Central European figures like Chancellor Kohl of Germany in 1996, as long ago as 1996, insisted that, and here you quote Kohl, the nation state cannot solve the great problems of the 21st century, close quote. Okay, but Brexit and the, and the recent European elections, discuss. Well, Brexit was a, an attempt by the British public, a majority of the British public, to reassert their belief in the nation-state. Uh, I, I voted Brexit, um, like most of my fellow countrymen, and I did so, I think, for the same reasons as most of them, which is that I thought we'd lost, we'd lost uh, our understanding of how we were governed, and that this was absolutely central. It's one of the reasons why 
we've had a pretty peaceful country, Britain, for some hundreds of years. Parliament was elected by the people, was accountable to the people, and if it let you down, you chucked them out. And this wasn't so with the European Union. We felt, and I know lots, lots of people who think very differently to that, but most of us in Britain felt we didn't know how we were governed. We didn't know how to get rid of them. We didn't know who they were once they were put there. We didn't know who put them there. So the Brexit so you'd vote... Say, you'd say this is a, from the point of view of the argument in The Strange Death of Europe, this is a hopeful sign. The British public, at least, are not remaining entirely supine. Well, except that, I mean... Immigration was a huge part of the Brexit vote because losing control of our borders was one part of the the wider loss of control people were clearly objecting to. But I say in the book, uh, in advance of the Brexit vote, that that just because you have uh, um, national autonomy does not mean that you might not make the same ludicrous decisions. I mean, we we were perfectly able under the Blair government to to have an appallingly lax immigration policy. Uh, where 50,000 people were coming in every six weeks, which is the same number of Huguenots as came in in the 1680s. So, you know, the the numbers went up thanks to the Labour government, and if you got a Labour government like that again, then the numbers would go up like that again. And uh, even a Conservative government's basically not been able to to, to, um, restrict the immigration very much in the UK. But, yes, the Brexit vote was some kind... It was a, a, a shout of a reassertion that we would like to be governed in the way that we thought we were governed. All right. Douglas, the last question. Actually, let me give you a quotation and Mm. then a little vignette. Let me tell you a little story and then hand it to you. And the quotation again is you, again from The Strange Death of Europe, promised throughout their lifetimes that the changes were temporary, Mm. that the changes were not real, or that the changes did not signify anything. Europeans discovered that in the lifespan of people now alive, they would become minorities in their own countries." Close quote. Now here's the little story I'll tell you. Ages and ages ago, when I was at Oxford myself, I knew Malcolm Muggeridge, the great British journalist. And Malcolm Muggeridge used to say that he often used to say, surveying what he even then saw as the decline of the West, used to say that he felt himself in the same position as a Roman in the 5th century. And he had a particular affection for Augustine in North Africa, looking across the Mediterranean at the decline of the culture that he loved and hearing about the sack of Rome. And yet, Augustine led a good life as witness that he comes down to us as St. Augustine. So the question is, You've said this is almost impossible to reverse. Mm. You've said that even this, the political movement, the populist movement of the recent years, it's very complicated, unlikely to get it quite right. So if it's over, Douglas, if it's over, if in your lifetime Mm. it's over, how does Douglas Murray lead a good life? What is is the definition? What, What components of fighting back of mm. resignation, mm. do to 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 do right-minded Europeans somehow or other re-establish some kind of analog to the Benedictine yeah. monasteries where they try to keep the culture alive? <laughs> what will constitute a good life if, as you argue, it all just winds down? My own view is that it should it should partly be done by living the life that we thought to be a good life until yesterday we're very unlikely to come up with an entirely new 
definition or invention, very unlikely that we're going to invent new gods, very unlikely we're going to come up with new religions, very unlikely we're going to, we're sitting here in Florence, very unlikely we're going to be able to do anything this good again. Mm. So why don't we have the recognition of what a good life was that was very recognisable until yesterday? Now, that can't be done. Uh, Roger Scruton and I were talking about this recently. Roger Scruton, the, the great uh, conservative philosopher. Yeah, this, 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 this can't be done by government diktat. It can't be done because the President of the United States or the Prime Minister of Great Britain says that it should be so. Mm. There are certain things they could not do that might make it easier. But this just comes from people. It comes from individuals and people leading by example. I, um, when I discuss many of the things that came up in the strange death of Europe, sometimes people say to me, you seem, um, uh, well, some people say, but you know, you don't seem as het up about it. And that must mean that you know it's over because otherwise you would be more. Yes, there's a difference be between fighting. fight and resignation. Yes. There's a difference and, between those two. And you work out, don't you, as an adult, what it's worth wasting yourself on and what points you should keep making and when you've made them enough and when you've hit yourself your head against that wall enough and you just have to work it out and I've said everything I can to try to warn my fellow countrymen and Europeans and Americans and others who've taken the book to heart of what I think is happening um, but I don't intend I've done my best shot at it um, and my own view is that after that, you have to live the life that you ought to live in the civilization you enjoy. And you see, it's more than enjoyment, obviously, isn't it? One of the problems, one of the things I wish one could communicate better to people is that all the things that they think are excluding people are not. They're offering people the best chance they'll ever have in their lives to get to civilization or civilization to get to them. And when people rail against things like this city we're sitting in, think that it epitomizes capitalism and, and uh, patriarchy and racism and more and more, I just think, I wish more people could take the attitude that I've taken throughout my life to these things, which is you don't have to be tub-thumping, you don't have to be a wild flag-raving patriot or anything like that. But your attitude should be gratitude. Mm. I mean, it's not as if this is nothing. The city we're sitting in is enough for a whole lifetime and a very, very well-lived lifetime. And it's all there. All of the literature, the books, the art, the thought, the music, everything, it's there. And all you have to do is to reach out and take it and be part of it. And that seems to me, in this culture of hatred and this, this thing I go into in the Mans of Crowds of this just endless zero-sum hatred and bitterness and blame, is just to turn that around and say, how about feeling grateful? Because what we have is a blip in human history to have the right to have. And we would be so damn stupid to give it away for nothing. Douglas Murray, author of The Strange Death of Europe and the Madness of Crowds, thank you. Thank you.
For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson. Okay, there we go. Oh, that was um, a bit quick. Caught me off guard there. I was just having a slurp of my coffee, so I'll just... Um, We'll get back to it. Look, five minutes. We've got five minutes away from six o'clock, and we'll have TNT Radio News coming up at six. I've got Jonathan Kahn right up now, coming after um, Dennis Prager. Gaza starts a war to kill as many Israelis as possible. And all you see on the BBC and Sky News, as we see in America on our TV, is dead Gazans. That's all you see. I shudder to think if in World War II the same media covered World War II, you would have seen far more dead German civilians than dead British civilians. But it takes a very, very frail moral mind to believe that you determine right and wrong by the number of dead. That's what we are told. Look at how many Gazans were killed and how few Israelis. Well, look at how many, few, how few Brits were killed and how many more Germans were. Does that make the Germans right in World War II? That's, that's the facile moral thinking that pervades our world. Now, something crucial for your life and your calling. In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet speaks of taking up his post on the walls as the watchman, as I read at the beginning. He says, I will stand my watch, I will station myself on the rampart, or in the New American Standard, says, I will stand my guard post, station myself on the watchtower, I'll keep watch, and I will see what he will say to me. The Lord answered me and said, write down the vision. Here the watchman's post is linked to a special hearing from God, receiving prophetic revelation from God, a vision, a word. So in the spiritual realm, the watchman's post is the place where you go alone with God. You leave everything behind, you get above everything else in the problem, and you sit, you Stay there with God to receive from God. God will speak to you, will lead you, will renew you, will refresh you when you get into the presence with God. It is crucial, even, you know, crucial, especially in these days. These are days all the more we all have to be with God. Every day, go to your watchman's post. High above everything, stand in his presence, sit in his presence, wait on the Lord. Intercede on between heaven and earth. Intercede between heaven and earth. It's crucial that you have your watchman's post and you go there every day. Be filled, be refreshed, be renewed, be enlightened. God may share something with you, but he'll strengthen you. He'll anoint you in his presence. That's where the power is. Hi, I'm Jonathan Kahn, and I hope you were blessed with the video. Make sure you hit